The Rolling Stones said that they were free to do what they want any old time. And not only were they free to do what they want, they were free to get what they want any old time. Uh, is, that, is that freedom? Uh, Kenny Loggins in his I'm Free. Have you guys watched this music video? The Heaven Helps a Man? Go home and YouTube it. It's the worst music video you've ever seen. Um, but essentially what he's saying is he's free because he's broken out of prison to be with the woman he loves, but they are going to live on the run. He is not free, but he's saying he is. All right. Um, George Michael said that to be free, all you have to do is take these lies and make them true somehow. Like, y'all don't even know, but you were singing these lyrics. You have no clue, but you love songs about freedom, and it doesn't matter. As long as you hear the word freedom, you're like, um, yes, yes. Take these lies and make them true, Lord. Take these lies and make them true. Like, that's what we do. We just repeat things, and we sing these things. And Snoop Dogg said, you've got to be young, wild, and free, like... You're not free if you're not young and wild. So if you can't be young and wild, then are you really free? These are the things we sing about, we talk about, we repeat out loud. We have no idea what we're saying. We just talk about it. As children, we are taught that freedom is important. You guys remember this clip? Go ahead, play that clip. The humor to that clip is he's not free. Like that, 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 that ringmaster is terrible, but he has no strings on him. So therefore he's free. We are taught at a very young age that freedom is what we have to have. Now, I, I understand that there are a lot of views on freedom. There are a lot of thoughts on it, but at our core, whatever your thoughts are on what it means to be free, I can guarantee you all of you want to be free. I can just guarantee it. You all, me included, we all want to be free. So the question becomes, what is freedom and what do we actually use our freedom for? I'd like to challenge your thoughts this morning because I know some of you grew up in a narrative that might think like this, that maybe to truly be free is to do life without God. I know some of you have this view. You walk with it right now. Some of you are teetering on that decision right now. If I'm going to be really free, it's got to be free from God. There are entire groups bent on teaching and, and helping um, people who are of faith understand that they're really prisoners 
and that to his rules and his ways, then you got to cut yourself off from those things to be truly free, man. You have no idea how many times I hear this. You got to get out from underneath God to be really free and then you can fly. But what if, what if they're wrong? Have you ever taken a second just to think, what if they're wrong? What if real freedom is not possible apart from the one who knows us best? What if real freedom isn't possible if we leave God behind? What if by leaving God behind, we actually sign ourselves up for a life life of slavery? You ever thought of it that way? Have you ever considered that they could be wrong in what they're telling you? Sometimes I just don't think we stop to think. It might be time to think about those answers. I want to suggest this morning that to leave God behind is to desire a life of slavery. What I mean by that, and I want to start in the Garden of Eden, because I think we have to understand the beginning to really understand what God made us for. In Genesis chapter 1, listen to these words. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. This does not sound like a God who is trying to constrict, crush, or bind up anyone. In fact, the first two commands God gives man and woman are to love each other, be together, don't be alone, be fruitful. He's talking about sex. He's talking about children. He's talking about filling this place up. He's talking about being creative, creating as he is creative, giving us and taking care, for, taking care of all of our needs. He's like, oh yeah, I got you in all of this freedom. You are free with me. Did you forget that? I think some of us aren't even sure we've ever heard that before. Because we have been so swept over by the lies of the culture. We forgot that God made us free in his presence. There's a reason we long for freedom. It's because he made us to be free. The question now, and very, very, um, The center of much of the argument today is, how do we actually get free? Everybody has their opinion. Everybody has their thought on what it means to be free. So God's saying, I have you. Fill up this place. Tend to it. Govern it. Be creative as I am creative. Uh, multiply this over all over the earth. Reflectors of me. I mean, it's going to be this amazing picture That sounds really constricting, right? What a jerk God is. What a terrible, terrible, terrible thing to do. Not even close. He had provided for us freedom. But the question is, 
Would it have been true freedom if Adam and Eve hadn't been given the ability to make choices? See, this is, this is, this is hotly contested these days. Real freedom isn't present when you can't desire something. It's just the way it is. That's how freedom works. You have to be able to choose to desire something. If you can't desire something, you aren't really free. Not only is there desire involved, there has to be opportunity. If you don't have the opportunity to pursue the thing that you desire, then you are not truly free, are you? Not only does opportunity have to be there, but the ability to get that thing that you desire has to be present or you are not truly free, are you? All of these things have to be in place for there to be real freedom. And historically, you can look at cultures that have not been free. And you see one or all of those things stripped away from people. To be free, one cannot be a robot Genesis chapter two, there's a zoom in on more of that creation account that we just spoke about. God gives Adam and Eve the removal of the robotness, if you will. Genesis chapter two, verse 15, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Friends, boundaries did not come in as a result of the fall. I need you to hear me when I say that. Boundaries are not a result of the fall. They, are, they were actually placed in the garden before Adam and Eve ever chased lesser things. There is freedom and there is a choice. And there is a, something proposed that these people were not little robots and that desires opportunities and abilities to reject someone's love was present. See, with freedom comes the ability to reject Like, if I can't reject your advances, I'm not really free, am I? We see this picture developing, and it's a hard one to watch. Here, Adam and Eve are given this freedom, they desire, the opportunity, and the ability, and they choose something other than what God has presented them. God's gift of freedom to Adam and Eve, the promise of security and provision and purpose and relationship with him and with each other, This total freedom in his presence, it's what they were made for, they lost. I don't think we take enough time to contemplate all that was lost. We run straight to, yeah, you're fallen, you're sinful, you're broken. But have you ever gone, man, I wish things stayed that way? Ever? For a second, had a chance to contemplate that. To know that that's God's good intention for us. Does it ever make you mad that it's not that way? Makes me mad. I get frustrated all the time. My God, I so see the effects of thinking that freedom comes some other way. 
and I'm tired of seeing it. I'm tired of feeling it in my own life. I'm tired of believing that there are other things that will give me more freedom than you. And it hurts. I don't know if we contemplate all that was lost as much as we should. If you know the story, the temptation was too great and they no longer wanted to be near God, but they wanted to be God. And it was that very desire to be God, not be near God, that actually enslaved Adam and Eve. It didn't take them to another level of freedom. There was no more freedom. It actually was taken from them. It actually bound them up. They would be forever slaves to trying to live life apart from God. Sin and death now drove their craving for freedom. They were slaves to chasing work, satisfaction, and grasping at anything and everything that might return them to the original setting. And there was no way back. Freedom in the presence of the one who knows us best was lost. Freedom was lost, not when we were in God's presence. You need to hear me say this. Freedom was lost when we chose to live life outside of God's presence. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, humanity is bound up by trying to A, live by laws, or trying to B, please false little gods. That is what we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It is people attempting to live apart from God, looking for freedom, never finding it, and God saying, hey, Let me interrupt all of your plans. Because freedom is actually my plan. You would have no understanding of what freedom really is if I did not exist. No clue. Freedom is his idea. This is a lot to consider this morning. Paul takes the Galatian church this week. Freedom isn't a secondary issue with God. It's actually what we were made for. But the question becomes, how do we get free and how do we use that freedom? These are two hotly debated topics in our culture today. This is not just a Christian's question to struggle with. It is a human question to struggle with. This is why I said, God says we're free. We choose not to be. We go into slavery. And so what our pride does is we say, now we know better ways to get free. That's why the conversation is so loud in public. Because everyone has their ideas. But God made us for freedom. Thankfully, Paul will help us see more clearly on this topic. And I know that was a a longer intro, but I have to paint that picture to understand where God is taking us. And I'd like to stop for just a minute here. And I would love for you to pray along with me because Christian freedom has been hotly debated and talked about for centuries. And it is a gift when the Holy Spirit reveals to us what is freedom. And I am foolish to think that in any way I can explain it better than the way the Holy Spirit can through his word. So we're going to pray And will you beg with me that God would open our eyes to what real freedom looks like? Father, you are the author of freedom. And there is no freedom without you. 
We have formed opinions, we have had experiences, we have walked narratives that have told us all sorts of things about freedom. God, I know some of us have been bound up in churches where we saw the opposite of freedom. And I know some of us have been bound up in the worship of little gods of money and satisfaction and and sex and power and fame. And we have seen the opposite of freedom, thinking we would find it there. So Lord, would you show us this morning, through your word, what it means to be free and how we ultimately are to use that freedom. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. Galatians chapter five, starting in verse two. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. Paul is reviewing with where we have been. The Galatian people were a Gentile people, meaning they did not have the law. They did not have what Moses wrote. They didn't know anything about the Old Testament, but they were these people who worshiped little pagan gods. They had temples they would go to, praying to the God of fertility, the God of good fortune, the God of this, the God of that, the God of everything. And they would do these things to please these little G gods. And then Paul shows up, introduces to them the one creator God who gives Jesus on their behalf so that they might know God. And better yet, he said last week that God would know them. And it was by faith. It wasn't by their trying to please these gods and trying to perform and trying to do this song and dance, but that Jesus had come. He had lived the perfect life. He had died the death, the the sacrifice that would atone and, and, and make me right before God. And that he rose from the dead to prove everything he said was true. And that is by believing in Jesus, by knowing him, that he is a living God, not a dead God, that you are made right with God. This was their story. They were a people who had no shot, who had no chance, but God pursued them. He sent Paul to to declare this story, the good news. That's what it's called. It's an, an announcement that something has been done on your behalf and you are benefiting from it. That Jesus has made relationship with the one true creator God possible. And now, these Galatian people who had heard and responded to this message, he was afraid for them because there were people coming into their city, into their churches saying, well, yeah, you heard about this Jesus, but let me tell you about all the laws you need to be bowing down to now. So these people who did not have the Jewish law were now being told, you must start living like Jewish people because you believe in a Jewish Messiah. So we got to make things work out here. So yeah, faith, but you got to be circumcised. You got to start obeying these things. You got to start eating this way, living this way, celebrating this way. And Paul's saying, whoa, there is a problem with these two things coexisting together. The result, Paul actually tells them, this is what the law is for. I want you to know that when those people try and tell you, you got to live by the law. Here's why the law was given. Galatians chapter three, listen to his words. 
Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. He makes it very clear that when we look at the law in the Old Testament, we hear, don't have any other gods but me. Don't bow down to idols. Don't, don't use my name in vain. Don't, don't steal. Don't, don't covet. Don't commit adultery. Don't, I mean, he just goes this list. You're sitting there going, oh, man. Most of us in this room, if we're honest, we're not going, I got that. Most of us in this room would go, yeah, that law, then you got me. I've been gotten. That's the point. When you are able to respond and go, I can't do that. You are halfway there. Because the other half is Jesus going, I did it. If you'll look at me, if you'll believe on me, you are not subject to that law any longer. The results, Paul said, is if you go back to trying to live all the laws and all the rules, number one, it will actually make Christ useless to you. Christ died for no reason if you could be saved by your works. Secondly, he says, if you want to live by the law, you don't get to pick and choose. You got to keep the whole thing. You don't get to go, I like that one because I can keep it. I'll never forget. We were doing a family devotional at my house one time and we set up these 10 bowls and it was kind of like that Bozo the Clown game where you like bounce the ball into the bucket, the ping pong ball, and the farther up you got, the more you won. Well, we just, taken, we just took a balled up sock and we had 10 bowls and we were basically saying, all right, so this is kind of like Ten Commandments. You can throw one in and you can get that one and you can get it closer and you can get it closer and you can get it closer. And like, so my oldest son, Zeke, was having the hardest time. Getting, get, he couldn't get that last one. So what he did was he ran down, he picked up the far away one and brought it back and set it right next to him, set it down and he could drop it in. I was like, that doesn't work that way. But it's what we do. It's what we do when we look at the law. We're like, I can't keep that one or that one or that one. So it's not even important anymore. I'll keep the ones that I can and I'll feel good about it. Paul says, you don't get that choice. You do not get to choose which one of them you're good at keeping and decide to keep it. You must keep it all. And then lastly, he actually says that if you run to the law, you are actually cut off from grace. You are not moving closer into relationship with God. You're actually moving farther because you are depending upon your abilities and not God's. These are disastrous results. And Paul is pleading with them, please understand this. This is not freedom, but I want you to know what freedom is. For the Galatians, they had come out of one form of slavery to idols and into freedom because of Christ. And then they were gonna go right back into slavery because they were gonna try and live by the law. They both cannot exist in the same house. Um, there is a bumper sticker that you probably have seen living in Asheville for a while, and it's that coexist bumper sticker, correct? It's either all the religious faiths or Star Trek and Star Wars people getting together. It's uh, Marvel and DC people getting together. It's the idea of let's just all get along, okay? We're gonna take up this space together, so we should probably get along. Now, that understanding of coexist, I can get with. I'm good with that definition of coexist. In fact, Google Dictionary defines it as to exist together. 
to exist in mutual tolerance despite different ideologies or interests, okay? So good on them for getting that right. But the secret happens, the problem happens, is when Christ followers, we cannot be agreeable with the coexist concept when we believe that coexisting suggests that all religious thought is equally true. This is where you and I, as Christ followers, have to put our thinking caps on. We have to think. We have to use our brains. We cannot just let emotion drive. While I love emotions, and I do believe that God's gifted us with them, they can be fickle things. One of the things I wanted to show you is some imagery in just a second. There are two ideas on pluralism that exist in our society. There's social pluralism, which is the idea that all religions and traditions and beliefs should be allowed to share the same space. I can get with that. But then there is literal pluralism, and that is that they are all true despite distinct differences. What I mean by that is the law of non-contradiction. I know, don't, don't, you don't go to sleep here. It simply means A cannot equal not A. I will show you some examples. The first one I want to show you is that of these, of these religions, there are some that say there is no God. There are some that say there is one God. There are some that say there are many gods. Now, no God, one God, many gods. All different statements. Here's the thing. All of them can be false but not all of them can be true. They teach the exact opposite concepts, okay? Let's look at the next one. The salvation views, to be saved. Some say there's no salvation. Some say salvation is by works. And one says there is salvation by grace. They could all be false, but they cannot all be true. Let's look at the last one on Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is not God. They could all be false. They cannot both be true. This is what I mean. You have to use your brain today. You cannot check out on conversations and and people's thoughts and philosophies about these things. The Christ follower is an apologist. And I don't mean someone who, who asks for uh, apologies, apologizes about the Christian faith. It's one who defends the faith. It's one who's able to articulate, what do I believe and why do I believe it? This is the culture we live in today. Now, All religions are not the same. In fact, all religions do not say that all religions are the same. In fact, if you were to say they're all the same, you would offend most everyone in those groups. Just because you don't want to think about the differences between them does not mean you're given license to say they're all the same because they are not all the same. Why is this dangerous in the church? I will tell you why it is dangerous. People in the church that never feel, will, will never feel compelled to share Christ if we believe they're all the same. People in the church will reject the call to make disciples if we believe they're all the same. The church will fail to speak up about the one thing every human heart was made to hear and is that it was made to be in relationship with God and that door was busted wide open for us in Christ Jesus. 
if the church begins to believe they're all the same, we will be no longer burdened for people to know this. Someone who has said they are all the same will never feel the need to pray for, live out the gospel, or speak to people about the hope of Christ. It will be a natural result. Um, I want to show you a slide really quick. 12 days ago, Barna came out with these statistics, and um, if they can be thrown up on the huge screen, that'd be great for me because I can't see it. Um, There's a couple of different elements at work here, but I want to point your attention to the second to last one. And and here's the thing, I am not anti-millennial. In fact, I love millennials. I'm in the group that's right before millennials. Uh, I'm not technically a Gen Xer. I'm I'm in that weird group. Do you guys see that weird group? That's me. Uh, I'm in that group. But there's an idea among millennial Christians which bothers me, and and I hope it will, will bother you, and you will have to wrestle with this. I think you should have to wrestle with it. 47% of Christian millennials believe it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. If a church chooses to say it's wrong to share your faith with someone who does not share your faith in hopes that one day you will share the same faith, the church no longer exists. It'll be, a, it'll be a generation. Done. This is a problem. But it is a result. It is a result of people just going, meh. Why do I tell you this? The point here is this. The Galatians were going to find themselves believing something entirely different than the gospel. No one can be saved in two ways. You cannot be made right with God by faith and at the same time by trusting your own efforts. It cannot be done. It is either a gift or it is earned. Paul is getting to the heart of the gospel. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 5. But... We who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important, hear this, is faith expressing itself in love. You were running the race so well. Who's held you back from following the truth? It certainly isn't God, for he is the one who called you to freedom. He is the one. Not you. Not the culture. Not your environment. Not your your peers. God is the one who called you to freedom. Do you think of him that way? My guess is could be 50-50 in this room. Could be 60-40. Knowing what I know about the history of the church in the United States, it could be lower than that. God made us for freedom. And we get back to that freedom through Christ. Christ is the evidence for us that God's gonna get what God wanted in the very beginning. A free people, he's gonna have a free people. 
and his people are gonna reflect him. That is the good news. So we know that God called us to freedom. How do we use this freedom brought about by faith that is expressed in love? Verse 13 of Galatians 5 says this, for you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but, right? Don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is not changing his tune here. In fact, the way that he expresses this makes me know that it is from the heart of God that what is important is faith expressed in love. This is the heartbeat of the Christ follower's life. It's not all about the love, okay? Because if it was all about the love, then there would be no reason for Jesus to die, okay? It's not just about faith, because if it it was just about faith, you would not have seen a God giving himself to a bunch of people, loving people, and then saying, you know what's most important? Loving God and loving your neighbor, So it is about faith expressing itself in love. Paul is not changing his tune here and making it about your works. He's actually saying your works express where your faith is. And he is going to give us a very powerful picture of just how clear we can know the results. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, the whole Christian life, inwardly, it consists in faith towards God and outwardly in love and good works towards our neighbor. Inwardly before God, who has no need of our works. Do you know that? You know, I hope you know that. He has no need of your works. He didn't need you to impress him. He didn't need you to do any of those things. Inwardly before God, who has no need of our works, and outwardly before men, whom our faith profits them nothing, but who have, who have need of our love and of our works. What a succinct way to put it. God doesn't need our works. He sees our faith. Our, our peers, you don't need to hear me, hear me tell you, I have faith in God. You need me to help you. He brings it about as simply as it can be brought in. Faith expressing itself in love. We see the two main ways freedom can and will be used, selfishly or selflessly. This has been the struggle from the very beginning. Where we see God's presence, we see selfless, selfless freedom. Where we see the sinful nature and desires leading, we see selfishness. Because of this very real difference, Paul tells the church this in verse 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. The Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are, no, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. 
Again, Paul goes back to, while the struggle is intense and the sinful nature is like, I want to rule. And the spirit's like, I am way better. We have to be reminded that we aren't performing. We aren't earning. The behavior and list keeping don't hold us because God does. Like, that's the difference. Am I trusting the law to hold me or my idol to hold me or am I trusting that God will hold me? He's the one who holds me. I walk in this life by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Those are Paul's words. That's how we live. Paul goes on to give a very black and white picture of this battle. He wants the church to understand that when the sinful nature is driving, you're going to see these things. You ready for this list? Galatians 5, 19. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. You want some very clear ways to know if you are walking in the sinful nature desires? Here's, here's a picture. Can't argue it. He says it's very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition. Can we just talk? I'm not going to talk about it for a long time, but we could. We could talk about selfish ambition all day long in the church, but we won't. Dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Told you. Paul is not backtracking on his salvation is by faith here. He is saying, if you are putting your trust in yourself, To save yourself, the results will be very clear. If you are trusting you, this is what will come out. Paul is giving evidence for those who are saved. He is saying those who say they are his. There will be very clear results and you will be able to know them by these results. Things that will cause us to examine where we might be telling God he is wrong We might be going, you know what, God, you're wrong about these things and you're wrong about satisfaction and you're wrong about wholeness. So I'm gonna do it my way. When you do it your way, it has very real results tied to it. When you follow the desires of the sinful nature, us trusting ourselves for salvation, this is what the fall in the garden was about. God is not enough. When we tell God that he is wrong about him being enough, there will be results that pour out of our lives. These things don't just show up, but Jesus said they have a start. In Matthew 15, 19, Jesus is talking to people obsessed with the outside. He says this, from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander. The results of not letting the spirit lead are clear. To say it another way, the results of refusing to believe Jesus alone satisfies and attempting to bring about our own salvation will be very clear. I don't have time to do in-depth on any of these things, but let me put it simply. Sexual immorality, impurity, and lustful pleasures, essentially, if my life reflects that, here's what I'm saying. God, you're not enough. I know better roads to intimacy and relationships. 
God, I'm, I'm going to run to the, the one night stands, the active multiple sexual partners, the flirtatious life, dishonoring of the marriage bed of one man and one woman for one life, pornography, adultery, sexual abuse, lustful pleasures, uncontrolled, unrestrained, and boundaryless sexuality. When I believe that Jesus is not enough, I will run to the roads that I think will do me better in intimacy and relationship. When you believe that idolatry and sorcery are a part of your life, you're saying God is not enough and that I can't trust him for the future, so I'm looking elsewhere to get what I want. This is not just a general little idol like money. This is truly seeking out occult and other religious practices. A substitute for God is what you want because God is not meeting you where you want him to meet you. So you will run to other substitutes, counterfeits for the Holy Spirit's power. I want the powers, but I don't want the God who comes with the powers. I want the substitutes. When you're running to hostility or quarreling or jealousy or outbursts of anger or selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, you are saying, God is not enough. I'm seeing what everyone else has and I want it and I want it my way. When those things happen, all of those things are present. Are you constantly argumentative? Are you always picking fights? Are you always trying to divide people? Are you always trying to hold on to grudges? You can't let things go. You can know the sinful nature and the sinful desires are driving. Drunkenness and wild parties. God, you are not enough. I need to be filled with something else. Whether it's, whether it's the drinking constantly or the getting high constantly, you're mimicking the Holy Spirit. It is a poor substitute for the real thing. None of these determine your salvation, but all of these display your salvation. None of those things, if you find yourself having a historied part of your life in those areas, none of them can keep you from salvation. But if you are living a life and those things are all that are displayed, you're declaring who you're trusting. The shocking element that Paul points to next is not what you think it'd be. He does not go into another list of things to do. Listen to these words. Verse 22, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Where we saw the results of selfishness, here we see freedom that is others-directed. Paul doesn't describe people doing loving things. He describes a loving people. He doesn't describe a person who does kind things. He describes a kind person. He doesn't describe a person who does, does good things or loving things. He describes a loving person. This is so important that we understand that when the spirit is present, it's not about us changing the world. It's actually about the spirit changing us. Then things change. Like this is why, I, why this, the whole social gospel church that just says we're, we should only be about doing good things. Friends, we don't have the power in us to do all the good things that are hard. We don't have it in us apart from the spirit of God producing these things in us. Notice the word fruit. 
The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in us. It's not singular. You don't get to pick and choose. This isn't a you pick two combo. This isn't you going, you know, well, this is not my gift. It's not gifts, it's fruit. Do not be confused by the difference between gifts and fruit. Well, it's not just me. I'm not a patient person. No, you're not. You know who is? Jesus. Jesus is the picture of patience. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I'm just not a joyful person. No, you're not. Your face shows that a lot. But you know who is? Jesus. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus saw the coming of the cross. He endured it on our behalf. He is the one we look at. The joy of the Lord is our strength. I just don't have any self-control. No, you don't. Can you just admit that? But Jesus was the picture of self-control. He never lost it. In sinful rage, ever. Not once. Love, serving another because they have value. I'm not getting anything out of this. I'm just serving them because they are valuable to God. Joy, anchored in the promises of God. Peace, confidence that God is in control. How many of you can put your head on the pillow and sleep because you know he's in control? Peace is a fruit of the spirit. Patience, facing trouble without exploding on people. Kindness, the ability to serve others without worrying about yourself. It's a fruit of the spirit. Goodness, that word there is integrity and being the same person all the time. Some of you, your problems would be over if you just knew you were whole in Christ. Some of you are so driven because your life is fragmented. You're pretending to be one person here, one person here, one person here, one person here, and it's exhausting. You go to sleep at night thinking about who do I need to impress tomorrow? The power of, good, of being one person all the time is because I'm his. I don't have to change anything. I don't have to impress you because I don't even have to impress God. Jesus did that. My faith is in him. Faithfulness, you're true to your word. Wow. We don't even have the power to do that on our own. That's how dependent we are. Your yes meaning yes and your no meaning no. Gentleness, the best definition I've ever heard of gentleness is self-forgetfulness. Being able to go, I can get down on the level of a child and I can be in the life and the face of a child because I don't care what grown-ups think. And I can be and sit with 70 and 80 and 90-year-olds and just sit and talk because I'm not rushing around to impress the young people. Self-forgetfulness. Self-control, the ability to pursue the important over the urgent. You're not impulsive. You're not uncontrolled. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Nate, Soon the band come. While we do look to Jesus to understand how to live these things out, he is not just our example. He is the one we trust in because he produces the fruit in us. It helps me know he's not done with me. He's not given up on me. And he's gonna continue to develop in me that which he desires. 
verse 24 and 25, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. At the beginning, we talked about real freedom is only present if, you have a des- if you're able to desire something, if you have the opportunity to pursue that thing, you have the ability to pursue that thing. But there's one more requirement for freedom to really be present, and that is in that thing that you have desired, there are no regrets ever attached to it. None. The beauty of the fruit of the Spirit is that because God's presence is there, we are no longer under obligation to fulfill the law, to perform, to earn, and you will never regret allowing that fruit to develop in your life, ever. The desire is given us by the Holy Spirit The opportunity to serve him is given by the Holy Spirit. The ability to do what pleases God is given by the Holy Spirit. And there are no regrets tied to it forever. Paul brings it home. And he says that who we are looking at will determine what comes out of our lives. Who are you looking at this morning? Are you looking at yourself? Are you so consumed with staying free? that you're actually a slave? Christians don't pursue freedom. We pursue Jesus. And he frees us in the midst of that pursuit. He keeps us free in that pursuit. This morning, as we go around to the corners of the room, you will see some bread and you will see some juice. That bread represents the body of Christ that was given for us. That That juice represents the blood of Christ that was poured out on our behalf for forgiveness of sin. When you take that bread, you dip it in the juice, and you take it in, you are saying, God, I'm trusting you to do in me what you said you would do. Firstly, to save me. Second, to transform me. It's not about me earning it, but it is about your grace. That is what we gather to rejoice in. It's why Jesus is a much bigger deal than we often think he is. Let's pray. God, we love you. And I do ask that in these moments, as this is such a debated topic and it's so difficult to communicate and it's hard for us to process, but would you, by your Holy Spirit, teach us about freedom, why you designed us for it and how we use it and all of those big questions. God, I trust you this morning for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.